Uh, today's scripture is Habakkuk 2, 2 through 5. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the Lord, or it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you, thank, thank you for all that you've given us and thank you for your word so that we can learn about you and learn what you've done for us. I pray that today you would speak to us with your spirit through your word and through Kevin and that you continue to change us to be more like you. In your name, amen. We good? We good? Awesome. Well, thank you guys for being here. My name is Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Aletheia. If this is your first time, uh, we're glad that you are here this morning. If I didn't get a chance to greet you or meet you before uh, service, please come up and introduce yourself to me afterwards. I'd love to get to, to know you a little bit and, and, and hear your story and hear how you heard about us and uh, what God's doing in your life. So, uh, and I, I'm really glad to be back this morning. Um, uh, especially getting to worship this morning in English. Uh, once you're in a Spanish-speaking country for a couple weeks and you only are catching about 60-70% of what's going on, um, it's really nice uh, to be back and, and worshiping with you guys here this morning. Uh, quick recap, though, we had a wonderful time in Colombia. For those of you guys that were praying for us, thank you. Um, um, you guys didn't pray hard enough, apparently, because we all got the flu. Um, but, uh, and, you know, one of the good things is, like, the, the Colombians tend to make fun of Americans when they come down there, because they're like, you know, we always get sick when we, when we go down there, and they're always like, ha-ha, you know, you weak American stomachs, or whatever else, and it's like, well, you know, we like to not have salmonella in our meat, but okay. Um, but this time around, um, even the Colombians got sick, so it was kind of refreshing. Yeah, I sound terrible, but it was refreshing in the sense of like they started to make fun of us, and then two days later, they're starting to drop like flies too, and it's like, okay, this is good. Now we know that this disease is ravaging all people, all cultures, not just the Americans, and so um, Brent and I were kind enough to get it first and share it with everyone. Here, buddy, you figure out whatever you need to, to figure out back there, um, but... We got someone to pray a prayer with us. There, there's there's going to be real follow-up and discipleship going on there, which we're really excited about. Um, please continue to play, pray for Ruben and Mariana and their, their family and the church in general. They've got a lot of things going on right now. The church is growing. Um, they're in the process of trying to figure out uh, what they're going to do because they've run out of space in the building that they're in. So they're talking about doing some remodeling in the building that they're meeting in. So please continue to pray for them. They have a lot of big decisions to make in the, in the and months on, on what to do there. Um, but continue to pray for them. God's doing some really, really awesome things um, as he's reconciling people to himself. So uh, again, appreciate you guys praying for us while we were down there. We really, really felt that experience. And um, I just want to brag on the team that we took down there too. You know, anytime you have uh, 17, 18 people going on a mission trip with you with some that don't speak Spanish or whatever else, and then everyone gets the flu. The team did an awesome job. That's one of the best vacation Bible schools I've ever been a part of, period, much less in another country. So the amount of training and things that went on there went really well too. So um, for the team, there we go, I'm on. Um, the team did an amazing job while um, we were down there as well. So if you guys get a chance to see them, ask them about their experience on the trip and, and, and what God was doing with them. So, uh, but I hope you guys have been enjoying your summer. I hope you guys are excited about uh, Independence Day coming up here in a few days. Um, and I hope you guys enjoyed um, 
you know, some of the, the other people that have been speaking over the course of the last couple of weeks um, without me as we've been um, studying and, and working through the book of Habakkuk and um, specifically Jake and Derek over the course of uh, the last two weeks. And I, I, I heard a lot of really glowing reviews about what a great job uh, Jake did and how long Derek went last week. And, um, so, and Derek was the first to admit to me that he talked for forever, and, um, so um, he, he apologizes for that, but I, I heard that he did a, a really good job as well, and that we've been kind of like plowing through the book and really learning a lot about what uh, God has been teaching us, and, and it, was, it was nice having some of you guys come up and tell me what a good job they did, and, and you know, and, and jokingly, some of you guys were like, oh, you know, like, you're easily replaced, and I'm like... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's good to see you too. And uh, but in, in all seriousness, though, it it is really um, nice to 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 hear that. Actually, you know, it, kidding aside, it uh, when we started this church four and a half years ago, uh, we planted this church with a vision to make much of Jesus and, and and make much of what He has done for us and to be loyal to God's word and be loyal to the way that he wants us to equip, lead, worship, and disciple. And, and so, you know, coming back and, and, and being gone for, you know, almost two full weeks and hearing, hey, things were great while you were here, uh, people were getting discipled, there's lots of really awesome stuff going on, is really, really exciting to me because it says, hey, we've, we, we're, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. You know, I should be able to leave tomorrow and, you know, the Lord should, could, could be able to call me home tomorrow and this church continue to, to live to the glory of God, to make much of him and to make disciples. And so, um, you know, as, as much as like, you know, we can get prideful and be like, oh, like, you know, they don't really like me. You know, that, that, that aspect of me gets cut to the core a little bit. The more important thing is seeing that the church is continuing to grow and, um, and it brings great comfort to me. So... What we've been addressing in Habakkuk up until this point, uh, as we as as we you know kind of look at the verses that Zach read for us earlier, is really we've been the, the book of Habakkuk. Really, if I can kind of sum up what God is trying to communicate in that book, is this is really in reality is 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 answering this question in a lot of way. Why why does God allow bad things to happen? And in the midst of of that, where is God and His sovereignty? in all of that. That's, that's really in reality what has been going on in the book um, of Habakkuk because the reality is is that in this lifetime you and I are going to um, at some point be faced with pain and suffering when things go horribly wrong. At, at some point, m many of us are going to experience multiple seasons of that, but at some point in your life you will experience that pain of suffering and discontentment and um, discouragement when things aren't going the way that you think they're supposed to, to, to go. And it inevitably leads to the question, why does God allow that pain and suffering to be experienced in the first place if God is really all-knowing, sovereign, and good? Because that, when, when I am engaged with agnostics or atheists, that's one of the first questions they ask me. Do you believe that God is all-knowing, all, all sovereign, and good? And I say, well, yes. Obviously, the, the Bible teaches those things about the characteristics of God. Absolutely, I believe those things. And so, in return, right, then their first question is like, well, then why, why can evil exist? Why, why can bad things happen? And Derek spent a, a lot of time on this last week, right? He talked about the various views, and he talked about the humanist view of, of, of why evil exists. And he talked about why Eastern philosophy and religion like Buddhism teaches why uh, evil exists. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to, to that, that podcast, because he goes into a lot of depth about that and does a really good job kind of breaking that down. And then, he, and then he talked about what the biblical view of evil is and, and, and why, why we can answer that question, right? A lot of people think they've stumped you when they ask that question in regards to God. Is, well, how can a sovereign, loving, all-knowing God allow evil? And, you know, if you've ever taken a basic philosophy course, all you have to be able to do is answer a question. You don't have to give a, a perfect answer, but you have to be able to answer the question to be able to make it philosophically plausible. And the reality is, is the Bible does give us an answer to that. Right, as Derek talked about last week, that sin and brokenness because of God's uh, decision to give man the ability to choose and love and worship, that because God gave man that ability, 
that when sin and brokenness entered, God allows evil to persist so that it might show us our need for him and how jacked up life is without him. And a lot of us are going to be like, oh, that's not a sufficient enough answer for me. I don't, I don't like that answer. And you don't have to like the answer, but the Bible says that's why God does it. Right? That, that God would turn men and women over to their own wickedness and their lusts and their passions so that they might realize that apart from God is nothing but wickedness. And evil abounds. And this in turn doesn't make God evil. It means he would allow us to be the creators of our own demise so that we might realize our need for him. Is everybody tracking what I'm saying here? That God doesn't make you commit evil. He allows you to commit and participate in it so you might realize the depth of your own wickedness so that you know you need him. That that is why evil continues to persist in the world. And, and, and if this is hard for you under, to understand, let me give you an example, okay? Because when I was listening back and reading through Derek's sermon, um, I felt like maybe I, I have some real life examples that might um, go a little better with this. So, so some of you guys know I have two young kids, one's five and one's two and a half, and, and they're boys. And so as I joke and tell you guys all the time, and you think I'm kidding, but I'm not. Um, there we go, I'm lost again. That, two, that two-year-olds especially, but really young boys, their entire role, like what young kids want to do all the time, especially boys, is in some way, shape, or form, they're trying to kill themselves. And I'm not joking, right? It's like, hey, let me climb up on this, this ladder so I can try to jump to this chandelier and swing from it. And it's like, well, you're going to seriously injure yourself, you know? Multiple times we've told my son Gideon, don't do this thing, don't do that thing, you're going to fall off and crack your head if you do that. And then he's crying or whatever else. Now, the reason I'm sharing this story is because Jackie and I have two very different parenting styles, okay? Jackie's laughing because she knows where I'm going with this already. Okay, so when, when we see our children walking into the danger zone, as I call it, or the suicidal zone, maybe, however you want to term, term we we take two different approaches. Jackie sweeps in and kind of plays referee or coach and is like, stop it, you're going to kill yourself, please don't do that. Dad sits back and says, you're going to kill yourself if you do that. You're going to seriously injure yourself. But my philosophy is, instead of me telling them and removing them from the situation, I would rather them seriously injure themselves. They're young, they heal way faster than I do, and the greatest reminder to not touch a burning hot oven is to touch a burning hot oven and burn your hand. Jackie doesn't like that so much. Okay, but, the, and, and obviously I'm making myself out to be God in the situation a little bit here, so, so, so bear with me, right? But my point is, is that God would give us over to evil and stupidity so that we might feel the full weight of that evil and stupidity that we might see the reality of who we really are a part of knowing him and obeying him and experiencing true joy and obedience towards him. You know, there's many of us that think that when God gives commands or rules or laws that, those, those, that God in some way is trying to rob us of joy. The same way that Josiah thinks I am trying to rob him of joy or that Jackie's trying to rob him of joy when we stop him from opening up an oven that's 450 degrees. There's no attempt to rob joy there. We're actually trying to perpetuate joy and increase that joy because we know they'll be robbed of it if they burn themselves. In the same way that when God gives commands to us, right, he's trying to protect us from ourselves, from our own wickedness, from the evil that persists around us, that God is trying to, in his sovereignty and his love towards us, protect us from that, but that God, much like I do with my kids sometimes, will give us over to wickedness or allow wickedness and evil to persist around us so we might recognize our need. The same way that the, the ultimate lesson I'm trying to teach Gideon when, he, when he's doing something that's going to seriously injure himself is next time you need to listen to dad. Dad didn't tell you that because he hates you. He told you that because he loves you and he's trying to protect you. And maybe you'll remember that the next time you walk into that situation. And so today's text, that, that is what God is addressing in today's text with Habakkuk, right? Because Habakkuk up until this point, remember what we've kind of read up until this point, right? Habakkuk's basically, if I can summarize it quickly, complaining. 
That's basically what he's been doing the entire book up until this point. And I love Habakkuk, right, because most of the time when you've got a minor prophet, they're talking to God, and then God is speaking back to them as a message to the nation of Israel. But in this book, it's just God and Habakkuk. It's kind of like God and Job, right? Habakkuk has got all these issues, and he's got all this angst, and God's like, okay, let me deal with you, Habakkuk. Let's walk through this, and let's talk about this, right? And so Habakkuk's been talking to God, and he's like, you know, God, are you really going to sit by idly while Judah and Israel continue to live in open sin. They're, they're participating in child sacrifice. They're worshiping the Baals. They're worshiping Moloch. They're worshiping all these false gods. They're, they're, they're walking and, and committing temple prostitution. There's all these different things that the nation of Israel has opened itself back up to after King Josiah has died and, and some other kings have moved in. And, and, and Habakkuk had been a part of King Josiah's reign. So he's like, Lord, are you really going to allow us to fall back into this again? Like, why would you allow your people to fall back into this? And so God answers him and says, well, you know, I'm going to punish Judah for this. I, 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 my, my time of judgment is coming. But when he explains to Habakkuk what he's going to do, Habakkuk pushes back, right? Because what, what does God tell Habakkuk? He's like, well, the Chaldeans, you know, that really, really wicked nation around you, which we often call the Babylonians, they're going to come in and conquer you. And once God explains that that's the punishment to the nation of Judah and Israel for their sin, what's Habakkuk's response? What? Right, so here you have in the beginning, right, Habakkuk crying out to God, please punish us as a people for our sin, and then when God says, yeah, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to punish you as a wicked nation with an even more wicked nation, what's Habakkuk's response? Whoa, wait a minute. Well, you, you wouldn't really use a more wicked nation than us to punish a slightly less wicked nation, would you? Would, have, have you lost your mind, God? That's basically what the text said last week and what Derek was talking about. And then I and so Habakkuk gets a little bold. By the time you get to verse 1 of chapter 2, look at what he says. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Look, he's like, look, I'm going to go out on my watch post and I'm going to sit by and I'm going to wait for you to answer God because clearly that first answer you gave me wasn't good enough, so I'm going to wait for a better one. Could you imagine talking to your boss that way? <laughs> right? Like, or, or for those of you guys in school, your professor, hey, I didn't really like the job you gave me, so I'm going to go sit at my desk. I'm waiting for you to come by and give me a new job. You can give me a different task. How many of you guys would still have a job after saying that to your boss? I don't see a single hand going up. Right? One. One person. Okay. You have a truly, truly gracious boss. Okay? Right. Now, imagine, now Habakkuk is doing this in a conversation with the God of the universe. He's like, yeah, God, I don't really like your plan. I'm going to go out here. I'm going to wait by my watch post. And when you've got a better plan that fits my agenda, stop on by. I'll be there. I'll be, I'll be hanging out and waiting for you. And so verses 2 through 5 is God's response to Habakkuk's kind of pushback and boldness, right? Look at what he says, uh, verse 2, and we're going to work pretty slowly through these verses because I want to make sure we fully are grasping what's going on here. But look at what he says in verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. So what's God's response to Habakkuk kind of complaining about the first vision that he'd been given about what God's going to do to public punish Israel? Oh, you didn't like that? Write it down so that everyone else knows I told you this. I want to I make sure that everyone knows that I don't care what you think. I want you to write down so that people hundreds of years from now can look at this and say, oh, yeah, God promised that the Babylonians were going to capture and send Israel into exile that that was his plan from the outset, that it wasn't that God had lost some cosmic battle with some other God, but that God and his providence allowed the Babylonians to come in and punish the wickedness of Judah and Israel. Write that down so that generations upon generations upon generations will know what's going on here. Now, guys, if this is not an example of God exercising his authority and sovereignty, then you will never believe in the sovereignty of God. 
right? Th- think, think about this for a second. Like, we do realize that God can do whatever he wants, right? He's the creator of the, of the universe, right? So he can do with anything within his, his, his desires and wants. Now, the beautiful thing is we know the, the character and nature of God, so we know a lot of the times what that's going to entail, right? But in this particular situation, Right, if you think that the promises of God are too much to handle, too bad God's not going to hide it and hold it back. God's like, look, it's, it, it's within my plan. You know, and, we're, and we're dealing with things here that like, go way back to the Mosaic Covenant at this point. Right? When, when God covenanted with Moses and told him that he was going to send the nation of Israel into the promised land and give that land to them, the covenant had some stipulations to it. And one of those stipulations was that the nation of Israel would not turn to other gods, that they would continue to worship the, the true God, Jehovah, right? and that as they continue to worship him, that they would honor him in the way that he asked to be honored and worshiped. And he said, if you do those things, I will bless you as a people, and if you don't do those things, what's going to happen to you? I will give you over to your enemies. And God, if, in reality, if you look at the, at, and, and Brent did a really good job of this a couple weeks ago when he talked about what led up to this point in Habakkuk, God has been insanely patient with the Israelites. Like, insanely patient. Far more patient than I am as a parent. He's dealt with hundreds of years of the Israelites doing the very things that God told them not to do. And he's telling Habakkuk at this point, okay, the appointed time has come, You've transgressed long enough. The transgression is complete. Here's what's going to happen. I'm giving you over to the Babylonians. I'm going to send you into exile. And God is not worried about our judgments concerning his character. Right? Here Habakkuk is super concerned about how God's going to appear and what's going on here. And God says, look Habakkuk, I don't really need your approval. I just need you to know that this is what's going to go on and what's going to happen here. Right. This reminds me, if you, if you look at the language here, it reminds me a lot of Romans chapter 1. Okay, turn over to Romans chapter 1 with me. I want to I read through a few verses here. Because this is, this is how God deals with sin and wickedness and how he works through things. Right? Starting in verse 18. Right, look, at, look at this with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in reality, everything that what's being talked about right there in verse 18 is what's happening in, the, in, in Judah and Israel at this time. Right? There's unrighteousness, they're suppressing the truth, they're doing the very things that God told them what to do. And, and what Paul is saying in his letter to the Romans is, look, the, and the entire human race is doing this thing. Okay? But he says, look, here's, here's the reality. God knows this is going on. Okay, then look at what he says in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, why are we reading that verse? Okay, because in dealing with the wickedness of mankind, right, God is, is consistently trying to get one thing across. Right? The reason you're wicked is because you don't follow me. And I have made it plainly clear to you, even by general revelation of the fact that we can look at creation and say something's behind all of this. Something divine set this in motion and placed this here. That the human race, right? I joke about this, and I I know some of you dog lovers hate me because I tell you all the time that the difference between the human race and every other species is that you and I have the ability to cognizantly, right, examine our conscience and deal with moral decisions, right? And, And Fido's only worried about his next meal, right? That, but that you and I, you know, your dog, if, like, I, Jackie and I had a dog our second year of marriage, all right? And that dog somehow would break out of those dog cages that you put them in. You know those crates? We leave them crates. He would, like, literally jump up and bust out of it, and he was a puppy, and so when he bust out, he would just, he'd rip, he'd eat 50 pounds of food, 
and we'd come in and you know, you'd open the door and be like, oh, Jack got out because you could smell the disaster from whatever, and things would be shredded everywhere or whatever, and your dog would come over and look at you when you came in, right? I, I didn't sit down with my dog and have a, a moral discussion about what he did, whether what he did was right or wrong. I can do that with my kids, right? My dog I put back in his crate, right? Because there's a difference between human beings. And so what God is saying is here is, look, I've given human beings the ability to have moral reason and capacity and to be able to look at the world around them and understand that I set all this in motion and to them to follow that moral compass and they've denied it. The same way that Israel, who's been given special revelation, has been given rules and regulations that will not rob them of joy but will increase their joy and they've walked away from it. And that God, here in Romans chapter one, tells Paul, I give men over to their wickedness, is the same thing that he's going to be doing with, the, with Judah and Israel. I'm going to give you over to your wickedness to an even more wicked nation. I'm going to give you over and let you realize the spiritual poverty that you have. That you are way more morally bankrupt than you think you are. There's a danger for us especially in the South with the dying embers of the Bible Belt being around us to think, I'm a pretty good moral person. Now, I've gone to church most of my life. I'm a pretty good moral person. God thinks pretty highly of me. And the scriptures will teach you over and over again, if you read them openly and honestly and are honest with yourself, you are far more wicked than you ever dared imagine that you are far more jacked up than you want to admit about yourself. And that is why we proclaim the gospel here. The good news that Jesus came to deal with that sin. That he came and substituted himself in our place because of how jacked up we are. And that God's not sitting around trying to play some moral game of how good you and I can be after we go to church or whatever else, that he's looking to see, do you realize how much you need me? And is your faith in my son who gave everything to rescue you? And so turning back then to Habakkuk and what's going on here, right, God is really just trying to display some pretty simple principles to Habakkuk who's supposed to be a prophet. Look, Habakkuk, I don't need your approval. Don't need you to be okay with the way I'm doing this, but I need you to understand that yes, I see the wickedness that you're complaining about and I'm gonna deal with it in my own way because I have a plan in place. I have an agenda in place. Now keep that in the back of your mind because we're gonna come back that, to that in a minute. But that this is part of God's sovereign plan for Israel, his people, right? The very ones that, that he chose, right? To carry this, the line of Messiah, okay? That God sovereignly chose them and look at what he says in verse 3, back in Habakkuk chapter 2. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens till the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Quick translation, Habakkuk. This isn't happening right this second, but it's going to happen. If it seems slow that the nation of Israel hasn't perished or been judged yet, don't worry, my judgment is coming. It's not delayed. It's just on my timetable, not yours. I do things in my timing, not yours. I choose who is going to lead you, not you. I choose how all this works. So we've been talking about the sovereignty of God, but I want to take a minute to pause because that's what we're dealing with here. Like, God's response to Habakkuk up to this point has basically been, hey, dude, you're forgetting who's in charge here. You, you've, you've clearly forgotten who's in charge and who created the universe, okay? And we talk a lot in the church about the sovereignty of God and believing it, right? And say, oh, you know, I believe in the sovereignty of God. God's all-powerful. He can do anything or whatever else. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to believe it. Anybody can give lip service, right, and say, oh, you know, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I, I trust him. I know him. I, I believe what God's word says. It's another thing to really believe it and, and, and take it to its logical conclusion. Because what if God in his sovereignty chooses something for you to walk through or be in that you don't really want to walk through or be in? What if this, right, 
Because in reality, think about these things. God allows what we see happen around us all the time, right? War, famine, disease, suffering. Is God still sovereign in the midst of those things? Ask yourself that question. Like, is, is God still sovereign when ISIS is beheading Christians? Is God still sovereign when an earthquake happens and thousands of people die? Is God still sovereign when young children get cancer and die? Is, is that possible? Is it possible for God to still be sovereign and yet still be good? Right? Many of us will claim to be proponents of the sovereignty of God until it clashes with our plans or our worldview. Right? Like, this is one of the things I was thinking about. Like, if I got diagnosed with cancer, is God still sovereign? I don't want cancer. I watched my grandfather die of lung cancer. He was in miserable pain for three months. My grandfather's one of the toughest men I know, right? And he was absolutely miserable. Is God still sovereign? Is it, still, is, is it, is it possible that God could still be good in the midst of that? Biblically speaking, of course, right? Because here's the reality of that. It's possible that God has chosen me to walk with cancer because that might, might most glorify him. It might be the, the best thing for me to put my idol worship to death and instead worship God. Because here's the reality, oftentimes I worship my health and comfort over God. Think about that for a second. That your health and your prosperity and your comfort is a God that you often worship and place it in front of God, God himself. And that God and his mercy might deem fit to give me cancer, not that I'm asking for it, Lord, to rescue me from that idol worship. And that in that, I might be able to display the greatness of God in the midst of suffering and pain to a world that doesn't see him or know him truly. Right, Jackie and I wrestle like crazy with the sovereignty of God every time Josiah is in the hospital dealing with seizures. Every time, right? Because here's the reality. Here's the, here's the, the game that Jackie and I both play every time he's in there. God can heal Josiah. It's certainly within his power and within his will to do so. He certainly could heal him. And yet every time Josiah has a bout of seizures or is in the hospital, and sometimes they seem to be getting progressively worse when they do happen, right? We see that God has chosen not to heal him or not completely. And so we have to ask ourselves this question and deal with the reality and, and the false ideas that even pop in our mind. Is God, is God really good? Does God really love our son? Does he care for him? And like, as I, as I sit here, right, and think through it right now where he's having a good season right now, it's easy to say, like, yes, of course, like, he's given, first of all, he's given us this child, and he's been placed in a loving home where there are literally thousands of people all over the world that pray for his health continuously. We were sovereignly put in a city with one of the best children's neurological hospitals in the entire country, right? Like, I, I think about that all the time, that God and his sovereignty, like, it, some of you guys don't know this, some of you guys do, when when I knew I was called to ministry and we were going to church plant, do you know what Jackie said to me? Please don't make me move to Florida. Direct statement from my wife. By the way, where do we live? Florida. Right? And we're experiencing it in all its heated humid, humid glory this morning, right? right? That, that was the one thing she said. She said, please don't make me move to Florida. And, and what did God do? God moved us to Gainesville, we started this church with a group of people, and that God and his sovereignty had us here so that Josiah could be a chance. That's, that's, a part, that's a part of God's sovereignty in the story that we often overlook, right? No offense to um, RMH Hospital in Harrisonburg, Virginia, but I would really rather my kid be here because that hospital kind of stinks. No offense to the people that work there. Right, but, if, but if you're comparing it to Shans, there's no comparison. 
right? And the reality is that, that in the midst of this, even though we see things going on, that God has chosen us to suffer and that in many ways, God brings Jackie and I to the end of ourselves because Jackie and I are both fiercely independent and strong-willed and that in the midst of those moments when Josiah is in the hospital, we are ripped of everything because there is nothing we can do to provide for our son in those moments. And it's then and only then that God removes the shackles of the chains of self-reliance that we, and self-righteousness that we put ourselves in and chooses to allow us to instead be forced to rely on him and trust him in those moments. Because we have no other choice. I can't go into my son's brain and make things work. I can't. I can't heal him myself. God can, but I cannot. And so God lovingly, in the midst of our suffering and pain, helps Jackie and I to hit a reset button so that we realize our own spiritual poverty and our need for God. That has how God can be good even in the midst of your suffering, even in the midst of your pain, that God allows Josiah to have medical issues to make us helpless and seek him. It's hard, but it is also good. And I can honestly stand here and say that. And this does not in any way nullify God's goodness nor his sovereignty. As a matter of fact, it parades it and makes him look great because we're forced to rely on him and trust him at his word. And so God is saying to Habakkuk here, look man, I get that this is rough for you. Right? I'm getting ready to punish the wickedness of Judah, which you've asked, but I'm doing it in a way that you're not interested in dealing with. But let me spell it out plainly for you. I am in charge. This is happening on my agenda. This is how it's going to go down. It's going to go down in my timing according to my plan. And if you've got a problem with that, why don't you look back in the past and see whether I'm worth trusting or not? Why don't you look back at the history of Israel and say, hey, is this God worthy of being trusted even in the middle of, of what he's about to do to, to Israel? Is he worthy of being trusted? Is he, is he worthy of having his trust placed in? Because this is how powerful God is. He can be anywhere and everywhere. He, and he plans the future and he knows these things and he works it all according to his purposes. And God's purposes are a good thing. I, tell, I, I said this probably about four or five months ago when we were preaching and working through the book of Galatians. And, and I don't know how I got up on that soapbox, but I started talking about the Bible that morning, right? And, I, and, I, and for some reason that morning, like, the message that came out was, this book is about God and worshiping Him. It's not primarily about you. That most of the time when we approach the Bible, we think, okay, like, where, where do I fit in this story, right? And I, like, use that story of, like, you know, David and Goliath, and, you know, you're David and you have your Goliath. And it's like, nope. The story of David and Goliath is a historical story about how God used Goliath against the Philistines, Right? God didn't write the story of David and Goliath so that I might read that and be like, oh man, like I gotta overcome my Goliaths. Here we go, you know? You know, he didn't write it so that, you know, when the University of Florida is facing the College World Series and they've never won before, that, it, that they finally can overcome and get that national championship. Believe it or not, that was not on God's mind. You know, and I'm, I'm excited. I'm glad they won a national championship, but, you know, it's not a proof text for you to prove whether you're supposed to win some sort of, you know, sporting event. Right, or like Jake talked about a couple weeks ago, right? we take that, that passage in Philippians out of context all the time. I can do all things in Christ who gives me strength. I'm going to lift 250 pounds over my head right now. Not what God's talking about. That in reality, right, what we see over and over again is that the Bible is communicating to us who God truly is. That he's sovereign and good and his plans are better than your plans. That any time we question the sovereignty and the goodness of God, you know what we're doing? We're running back to Genesis chapter 3. Where we're questioning, hey, is God really good? Does he really have my best interest at heart here? That's, what's, that's where sin is rooted at its core. Trusting the goodness of God or distrusting it. I don't believe God's really good here. I don't believe he has my best interest at heart. That's what Eve was struggling with. Right? As the serpent said, has God really told you not to eat from that tree? Oh, God told you that because he doesn't love you because he knows what will be true of you, right? And what did Eve think? Maybe God lied to me. Maybe God's really not good. 
Maybe I can't trust him in this situation. And that God is saying to Habakkuk, look, I promised the nation of Israel that they would be punished if they didn't follow me and that I would correct them as a father corrects his son and that is coming, be ready for it. Trust the process, right? Israel, you are the most insignificant group and tribe that has ever existed and yet you've come out of slavery to the biggest world superpower in Egypt. You wandered in the desert for 40 years and you had no weapons and a small group of people and yet you were able to reconquer and take back the land I gave you. Then in the midst of one of the most volatile and explosive places in the world with tribes and superpowers, I, we carved out a kingdom and a nation for you here. Right? One of my beliefs is and, and, and the validity of the Bible is the fact that the nation of Israel, if you think about it in human history, should not exist. They shouldn't. If Rome can't make it, how in the world did Israel make it? Right? One of my favorite characters in world history is Genghis Khan. The dude conquered half the known world at the time in like a short 30-year period. He died and the kingdom literally fell apart in four years. And yet Israel continued and continued and continued because of the promises God made to Abraham. That in his mercy and his covenant with them, but in the midst of all that, he's after one thing, not Israel's glory, but his own. And that's one thing we have to realize, that in the midst of suffering and pain, God is not after your glory, he's after his own. And that your good is his glory and making much of him. And so look at what he says in verse four, right? He's basically just got done telling Habakkuk, look, dude, you're wrong. Write it down. Don't care what you think. Right? And look what he says in verse four. Behold, his soul, and he's talking about the Chaldeans at this point, the Babylonians. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Right? He's like, look, I get it. I understand how wicked they are. I know how wicked the Babylonians are. Their soul is puffed up with pride. They think they're really powerful. I know, I know what they're doing is idol worship. I know they're worshiping false gods. I know what's going on. Don't think I don't know that. I know more than you do. Right, look at what he continues to say in verse 5. I know how much of a train wreck they are. Look, he says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He is never... He has never enough. He's like, look, I know how bad they are. They're traitorous like wine. They'll sign a peace treaty with somebody and immediately go back on it. Right? They can't be trusted. I know, I know that they are arrogant and prideful and they don't think they need me or need to know who I am because they're so powerful. I know that their greed is as wide as Sheol. Sheol in the Hebrew is basically the graveyard. So the point he's making is, is when people die, there's always more room to put more dead people in the ground. That's the point he's making, that that's how greedy they are. They'll never have enough, that they will conquer the entire world if he allows it because their greed is unbelievable. And the Babylonian leaders will continue to conquer and gather, but you will see what their end will be. But this is important because in the midst of Habakkuk's confusion, God is saying, look, I get how jacked up they are. I know more so than you do. That doesn't mean they aren't part of my plan. And I'm gonna use them to discipline Judah. And you need to trust the process. It's important for us to remember that we don't get to define whether God is being good to us or not. We define God as good because of what his word says. We can cry out in anguish and in suffering, but we don't get to define and tell God whether he's being good or not, which is exactly what Habakkuk is trying to do. All right, let me give you an example from scripture. Right, how many of you guys are familiar with the story of Joseph? Okay, about half of you guys, okay. So Joseph is one of, uh, of Israel's 12 sons, okay? And, you know, weirdly enough, you know, he, he ended up being Israel's favorite son, okay? Wouldn't recommend picking a favorite child, but again, you know, it is what it is. And so Joseph, you know, his dad gave him this coat, and so his brothers were already jealous of him. And then Joseph did something that I would also consider pretty stupid, Right, he has this dream where, you know, 
there are 11 other stalks that are bowing down to this other stalk and he takes it to meet him. And so he sits down at dinner the next day and tells his brother, hey guys, I had a dream last night that you all are gonna all bow down and worship me one day. Wouldn't, maybe wouldn't recommend that. You know, if you're in a community group and you have a dream where everyone in the group's gonna bow down and worship you, probably wouldn't share that information, right? But this is what he does. He's like, hey, you guys are gonna worship me one day. I had a dream about it. God told me it was gonna happen, right? And so, for those of you guys that are unfamiliar with the stories, right, his brothers are like, that's what you think. So they plan to kill him. They don't kill him. They spare his life, and instead, you know, because they're so kind, they sell him into slavery. And so the slave traders take him down to Egypt, and he gets down to Egypt, right? And at this point, you're thinking, how in the world is God allowing this to happen to Joseph? Like, isn't God evil for allowing this to happen? He's wicked. Like, his own family betrayed him and sold him into slavery. How in the world could God be good and allow this to happen? Well, let's continue with the story. Because right, he gets to Egypt, when he gets down to Egypt, Joseph's really gifted, God blesses him, and he ends up moving up in power. And then, while he's there, right, uh, one of the Egyptian leaders, his name was Potiphar, his wife takes a notice of, notice of Joseph and tries to seduce him. Right, and the story is, is that she grabs a hold of Joseph's, you know, uh, outfit, and Joseph's like, whoa, I'm not sleeping with you, lady. This is a bad idea. And she grabs onto it, he takes off running, and she holds onto his undergarments, and he runs out naked out of the house. Um, which, once Potiphar's wife says, hey, he tried to get frisky with me, and uh, tried to seduce me, you need to do something about this. He didn't have any witnesses, and his clothes were there, so guess what happened to him? got thrown in prison, right? Wrongly, right? He did the righteous and good thing in that situation and he was wrongly accused and put in jail, right? So here you have Joseph at this point, right? Who's getting beat down, right? And he continues to love God, he continues to trust God, he continues to worship God even in the midst of being in prison. So he's in prison and there's these two guys down there and one's a cook and one's a cupbearer and he starts having these dreams and he ends up interpreting the dreams and what happens and eventually it comes around years later that the, the one guy that he told the dream to um, tells Pharaoh, hey look, there's a guy in jail who's an Israelite and God has given him the ability to interpret dreams. And Ferris had this dream where there's seven fat cows and then there's seven skinny cows. And, and basically what uh, Joseph tells Pharaoh is that, hey, what, what God's showing you is that there's going to be seven years of prosperity and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And you need to prepare yourself for the seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh pulls him out of prison, places him number two in charge over the entire kingdom of Egypt. And what ends up happening is seven years of good crops and then seven years of famine. And so in the midst of this, right, and, and all the wickedness that has been around Joseph's life, right, God uses him to save the Egyptians. To save their people because they stored up their food properly for the seven years of famine. Now that's not it, though. Because in the midst of that story, Israel is struggling with famine as well. And he tells his 11 other sons, go down to Egypt and see if you can't get some food. And they head down to Egypt, starving in the midst of famine, and guess who they run into? Joseph. The brother that they had sold into slavery. Israel ends up moving to Egypt, they end up taking, taking care of him and his family, right? And then as Israel dies, right, Look at what happens in Genesis chapter 50, right? They know that Joseph hasn't done anything yet to them, even though they know they're worthy of his judgment because of the way they wickedly treated him. And look at what Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. You tracking with that? They admit that what they did was evil. They admit that they put him through evil and suffering. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. By the way, that dream was true. Right? They are falling down before him. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in for am I in the place of God. Everyone tracking there? That after everything he's been through, and he's number two in command of the biggest world superpower at the time, who is he still submitting to and trusting? God. His faith has been unwavering in God, even in the midst of pain and evil and suffering all around him. And then look what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Right, that Joseph realizes this profound truth in the sovereignty of God that even when evil and wickedness and suffering are going on around us, that God would allow it to happen for the ultimate good. That that is what God is doing here. And God is trying to explain the same thing to Habakkuk. Look, I'm gonna allow this wickedness to happen because ultimately Israel is gonna realize their spiritual poverty and their need for me. And they're going to, if you know the story, if you've ever read Daniel or any of those other books of while the nation of Israel is in exile, they're gonna return to God. And that God is going to allow them to repent and turn to him. And so, see, look, I, I get that the Babylonians are wicked and that I'm choosing a more wicked nation to punish Judah's wickedness. God doesn't need Habakkuk to tell him that. He doesn't need you to test him. He doesn't need Habakkuk to wail about the sin of Judah and demand that God moves. And then when God tells him what he's going to do to push back and say, hey, you're wrong, your plan's a bad idea, I don't like it. Instead, I want to go back to verse 4 and look at the second half of that verse. This is how he tells Habakkuk to deal with everything here. Look at what he says. But the righteous shall what? Live by his faith. It's like, look, you want to see Judah saved and preserved? You want to understand how to walk with me in the midst of pain and suffering and evil and wickedness, Habakkuk? Trust me and teach others to trust me as well. Teach them to trust my plan. Teach them to trust my goodness. Teach them to trust me in my sovereignty. That is what will make you righteous. See, God's not playing this game of which side is more wicked, that's the side I choose. God's not interested in playing that game. Right? If you notice, when Jesus shows up on the scene, right, you have multiple religious groups leading the nation of Israel at that time. Right? You had the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Right? And notice how Jesus didn't align himself with either group. He's like, oh, you know, I'm going to align myself with the Pharisees because they're the less wicked of the two groups. Right? Jesus wasn't interested in playing that game. Right? God is interested in teaching us about our spiritual poverty and need for him that you are fully in need of God's movement and action or you are spiritually bankrupt. That this isn't a matter of who is more or less wicked or who is more or less righteous. That God is not moved by levels of righteousness, he's moved by faith. And this verse is quoted throughout the New Testament. If you turn over to Galatians chapter three, we just heard that verse a couple weeks ago as we were studying the book of Galatians, but look at what he says in verse 11. I'm going to start in verse 10. It says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Right? That's exactly what we're talking about right now. God doesn't care about how wicked Judah is and how, in comparison to the Chaldeans. Right? Because God's law says, Look, if you can't follow all of the law, you might as well not try to follow it, period, because I demand perfection when it comes to obedience towards me. And then look at what he says in verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For what? And then he quotes Habakkuk 2.4. The one who does, excuse me, the righteous shall live by faith. Remember back to Genesis when Abraham is dealing with God 
Abraham does all these different things, right? He, he takes his son up on the mountain to sacrifice him, and he leaves his family to go out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, right, to follow where God's told him to go. And Abraham did all these different things that would put, right, obedience on display. But if you remember the moment where God declares Abraham righteous, what is happening? He's talking with God, and he says to God, you've promised me a great nation You've promised me an heir, and the only one that lives is some crazy, kooky cousin I have up in Damascus. How could that be my heir? And God's like, that's not going to be your heir. Your own son is going to be your heir. And it says that Abraham believed the promise of God, and what happened? God credited it to him as righteousness. That his faith and trust in God is what declared him right before God, not his performance. God is not after some sort of level of obedience that we can muster up for him, but instead abiding trust and faith in him. So here's how I want us to finish up this morning. What is God ultimately communicating to Habakkuk and ultimately then to, to us? Right, a, a number of things, right? Number one, nothing takes God by surprise. Okay? It wasn't like God was surprised that Israel was rebelling against him and that Judah was as well and that they went through this season of good kings and bad kings and that all this was, was going on and that Habakkuk shouldn't be, respond, be surprised that, that God knows what is going on here. He shouldn't be shocked by everything that's happening. And he's also promised right, that Babylon's going to have their day as well. Right, that for a season, ba Babylon's going to lead Israel into exile, but that ultimately the Babylonian kingdom's not going to last forever, that they're going to be chastised and punished for their disobedience as well. But that what he ultimately wants Habakkuk to see is how he deals with his people, and that's through the Abrahamic covenant, not the Mosaic covenant. It's not that the Mosaic Covenant doesn't exist and that obedience to, for Israel as a nation wasn't important, but that when you get on the foundational level of am I righteous before God or not, there is only one way that you and I can be declared righteous before God, and that is by placing our faith and trust in Him. Because if you place it in your own works, you will be left wanting because you cannot obey and follow the law fully like Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. That faith is the key to righteousness. It is what justified Abraham and faith in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf is what saves you and I. That and that alone. Remember how I said earlier, think back to this story, right? Because there is a ton of foreshadowing in what is going on with Habakkuk to the New Testament, right? Habakkuk is communicating with God. God has promised what he's going to do to punish and deal with the nation of Israel. And once God shares that with Habakkuk, what's Habakkuk's response? No, God, you can't do that. I'm going to wait for you until you tell me what you're actually going to do. Sound like anybody in the New Testament? Peter, right? As Peter spends three years with Jesus, sees him perform miracles, sees him teach the word of God, sees him talk about how he's the Messiah, sees the glory of God put on display in front of him in the transfiguration on the mountain. Like Peter is one of the guys in the inner circle. He's seen everything that Jesus has promised come to pass. And as they're heading towards Jerusalem, Jesus starts saying, hey, I'm heading to Jerusalem because the Son of Man has to be betrayed and handed over to wicked men. I have to be handed over, and the, and the Son of Man must suffer and die at the hands of wicked men so that you might be saved. What is Peter's response? No, Jesus, you can't do that. You have no idea what you're talking about. That's not what's going to happen to the Messiah. Right here this entire time, right, God has been doing all these things and showing his goodness and putting it on display for Peter. And as he lays out one final great act of mercy towards all of the human race, Peter says, no, I don't trust you, God. I don't like that plan. I don't like where you're going. And what is Christ's response to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> right? And I always love that passage, right? Because earlier on in that passage, right, he, he tells Peter, like, oh, look, you get it. You get that I'm the Messiah. And, and, and on this rock, which he's talking about himself, uh, I'm going to build my church, but you're going to have an important role of it. And everyone thinks that Peter's some great guy. And literally, not even like 20 seconds later as you're reading, right, he calls Peter Satan. 
so that you shouldn't get confused and start being, you know, worry, worrying about Peter being some great person that we're supposed to look up to. We're supposed to look up to Jesus, our God and Messiah and King. But that this is a foreshadow, right, to God's plan, right? Who in their right mind would sit back and say, you know what, to save the human race from their own wickedness and rebellion towards God, God's gonna turn them over to their own wickedness, Romans chapter one. And in the midst of that wickedness, he's gonna turn them to all sorts of depravity and depraved things that they can do. I'm not gonna list all the things that the human race can do. You guys know what we're capable of. Murder, genocide, whatever else, just name it. We do it to one another. And in the midst of all that, God says, I'm going to turn them over so they can see their true spiritual depravity and there's going to be one way to rescue them. I'm going to send my only son to suffer at the hands of those same wicked men who need me. I'm going to let them murder him, crucify him, and try him unjustly. I'm going to let him be mocked and scorned in the face of the very people that a week earlier were praising and heralding his arrival into Jerusalem. And this is the only way that I can save them from their wickedness and declare them righteous in my sight. Because Christ is going to suffer under the penalty of death for their sin. He's going to pay it and then he's going to credit and give to them his righteous standing before the Father. That's how this is going to be done. And as Jesus shared that, the disciples pushed back. And yet what happened? God in his mercy and in his sovereignty allowed everything to unfold because it is in his good and perfect plan for you and for me and for the entire world. Guys, Christ suffered to save us as a part of God's perfect plan. He's the better Joseph. He's the better David. He's the better Abraham. Think of any of your heroes throughout the stories of the Old Testament. They're foreshadows to the glories of what God would do for you and I in Christ. There is none like him. No one. No one in the entire pages and annals of human history can even begin to match the goodness of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And it was all in the Father's perfect plan and sovereignty. And I will tell you this, in the midst of standing around there, I would imagine that the other disciples that didn't push back like but Peter, but were probably thinking to themselves, this sounds wicked, no way would God the Father allow this. And yet what was better? Peter's design for the Messiah or the Father's? If you take anything away today, take away that you can trust and the sovereignty and the goodness of God because even in the midst of pain and hurt and suffering and wickedness and evil and sin, God is good. His plan is good. I've read the end of the book. I know what happens. It's fantastic. We can argue over exactly how it's gonna happen but the one thing we can all agree on is that for eternity, for those that are placing their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone, that they get to experience the goodness of God as Father and worship Him for eternity like we were created to from the beginning. Right, in a moment here, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna come up and take communion. Right, and we serve communion every week here at Aletheia, right? And you're not required to take it, you know, but I would ask that before you do take communion, right, God asks a few thing of, things of us because the, what, what's happening up here, and this is one of our fears about doing it every week is that it can become ritualistic and that we forget the importance of what communion is. Right? But what communion represents is that, that Christ's flesh and blood were given and poured out in a brutal murder so that your wickedness and the penalty for that might be satisfied to God the Father. And so as you take communion, what you're doing is, is you're saying, I identify 
with what Christ has done for me, and I believe that his flesh and blood were poured out for, for the forgiveness of my sins. And so I would ask you just to sit there, and before you take communion, that you would reflect and you would take it seriously. That if there's any sin that you have not repented of this week, that you would sit there and you would take a moment to just reflect back on your week and you would ask God, God, if there's anything that I need to do, if there's any sin that I haven't repented of, that you would convict me of that sin at this point and then you might grant me repentance. And that you would recognize your need for God's forgiveness for that sin. That you would repent of it, that you would ask of God's forgiveness and you would walk up and you would take communion, not as an act of contrition or payment, but as an act of worship, because that's what it is. It's an opportunity to thank Christ for already having finished the work for you by pouring out his flesh and his blood on your account. And that you might partake in the Lord's Supper and you can go back and worship him and thank him because he has forgiven you already for that sin. Right? I always remind you guys, right, what were Christ's last words on the cross? It is finished. And he wasn't talking about his life, he was talking about the payment for your sin and for mine. That it was fully paid, all of your sin, past, present, and future, that Christ was paying for it in that moment. And then you could go back to your chair after taking the elements, and you could sit down, and you could pray, you could stand, you could worship and sing, but you could glorify and enjoy God for all that he has done for you. And that as a part of his sovereign, perfect plan, he deemed necessary some 2,000 years ago to give up the life of his only son for your behalf because of how much he loves and cares for you and cares for his creation. It's the greatest news that anyone could ever be told. Let's worship him because of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness towards us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that throughout the Old and New Testaments, we see you trying to remind your people over and over again that the only place that they can rest in is faith and trust in you. God, we try to so many times run to justify ourselves with our own works and our own performance. God, might you be gracious enough to us right now to instead of allowing us to knuckle down and work hard and perform, instead reveal to us the true condition of our hearts and our spiritual poverty before you. As you say in your word that our burnt offerings and sacrifices towards you are nothing more than dirty menstrual rags. That's what you think of our good works. But that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ's life is a sweet aroma that satisfies your wrath and that we can rest in the finished work of Jesus as being sufficient to both satisfy your wrath for our sin and offer us new life, hope, forgiveness, and adoption as sons and daughters into your kingdom. Father, thank you for your perfect plan. Thank you that your plan, in the midst of seeming even crazy to us, secured for us a salvation that could not be lost. Father, thank you for every man and woman in this room today. I pray that you would remind them of your love for them in Christ and in Christ alone. Thank you for the privilege and the honor it is to pastor this church. I love you. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.